welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Bible Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm Pastor Levi Secord, and I'd like to thank you for listening. Christ Bible Church exists to bring all of Christ into all of life, and in doing so, we glorify God. This podcast series is not meant to be a replacement for the local church. It is not meant to replace your regular gathering with Christ's people across Christ's earth. And so we encourage you to use these sermons to bring glory to God, to bring all of Christ into all of life, and to strengthen and encourage one another in his name. With all of that in mind, let us turn our hearts and our minds now to the preaching of God's word, and in it may we see and glorify and emulate our Savior. Amen. Our God is a God who saves. And throughout the Bible, we see this told in a million different ways. Our God saves His people in so many different times and so many different places from so many different problems. But in as many times that God has saved His people, God is also a God who speaks. He speaks so that He might be known. If God did not reveal Himself, we would not know Him. We would not know anything about God if He had not revealed Himself to us. Contrary to the arrogance of our modern day, we can know absolutely nothing by ourselves. Everything you know is because God has revealed it to you, whether by His Word or by His creation. And so God has revealed Himself to us in creation, in Christ, and in Scripture. And He reveals Himself that you may know. And so in Scripture we have a revelation of God. And he establishes for us again and again patterns, types, and categories so that we might rightly understand Christ Jesus. Last time we were together, or last time I was here in the pulpit, in John 5, Jesus was in trouble. He was in trouble because he made himself equal to the Father in his words. And Jesus owns that charge from the Pharisees, And then he defends his equality with the Father. And he lists in that defense several witnesses to his claim. John the Baptist, the Father himself, Scripture, and his own miracles. Scripture testifies primarily to us about who Jesus is. And Jesus says to the leaders, you search those Scriptures for life, but they have life because they testify about me. Those themes are coming to us again here in John chapter 6. Jesus again performs mighty signs that people might see who He is, but they will not believe. And then Jesus, through those signs, reenacts many of the great Old Testament acts of salvation, showing them that He is what those things were actually about. That they need to see their Old Testament, as it were, through Him. So my question for you this morning, what was the chief act of deliverance in the Old Testament? What was the primary way that God saved his people in the Old Testament? The answer is, without a question, the Exodus. God redeemed his people out of slavery. He covered them in blood, the blood of a lamb, to save them from the angel of death. And he led them out of bondage into his presence and into his land. And the imagery of the Exodus and of the Passover is picked up and developed throughout Scripture, but especially here in John 
chapter 6. And again and again, the imagery comes to us throughout this entire gospel. John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the true Passover Lamb. Jesus takes the meal of the Exodus, the Passover, and He transforms it into the new covenant meal of the Lord's table. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 speaks of the Old Testament and the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. And he says these things happened as types, as examples for those who the end of the ages has come. And today in John 6, we're going to see that firsthand. The miracles Jesus performs here. He feeds 5,000. He walks on water. And then he launches into a 50-verse long dialogue about being the bread of life, the true bread from heaven. And in this dialogue, Jesus goes from his pinnacle of popularity, massive crowds following him, wanting to make him the king, to by the end, there's only 12 left. He loses everybody. And I think what we will see here today is that John wants us to see Jesus as fulfilling the Old Testament Exodus imagery. And what that means is that Jesus is leading a new and greater exodus through his body and through his blood. And we're going to see all of that in 71 verses today, which is way too many for one sermon. It seemed like a good idea months ago when I was outlining this. About Wednesday this week, I was like, what is wrong with you? But we're going to, we're going to give it our best college try here. John chapter 6. The key to understanding this passage is the, in, in context, is verse 4. So if you have your Bibles open, look at verse 4. John writes, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. This was not just a marker of time, though it was certainly that, but it was a marker of the meaning and the significance of everything that happens in this chapter. What is the backdrop of what Jesus is doing here? It's the Passover. It's the feast of the Jews. The feast of unleavened bread. The feeding of Israel in the wilderness with manna and quail. And so Jesus here is in the wilderness. He has a large crowd of Israelites coming to him. And like Israel in the wilderness, there is no food to feed them. What will be done? Jesus asked this probing question to Philip. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? John continues, he said this to test him. For he knew what he was about to do. You've got to love this about Jesus. He knows what he's about to do. He goes, hey, Philip, what do, you think, what do you think we would do here? How much money would we need to feed these people? Jesus was asking the question to get his disciples to think. And of course, they only think about natural resources. They say it would take about 200 denarii to feed these people. A denarii was a one-day laborer's wage for one day. So you're talking about two-thirds of a year's work just to feed this crowd. The point is clear. We can't feed them, Jesus. We don't have the resources. There is a strong echo here from Numbers 11, verse 13. Moses says to God about his hungry nation. He says, Where am I to get meat to give to all of these people? For they weep before me and they say, Give us meat that we may eat. Moses says, God, I can't feed all these people. What am I going to do? Well, he's doing the right thing. He goes to God himself, the one who creates and who sustains, the one who provides even for the sparrows of the air, the one to whom a cattle on a thousand hills belongs. 
In other words, what we're seeing here is Christ is about to do something that is dripping with biblical foreshadowing, imagery, and meaning. He's going to offer them a new, better manna in the wilderness. A new, better Passover meal that was but a shadow and a substance. Or that is a shadow that Christ is the substance of. And so, Jesus is provided with five loaves and two fish, which his disciples helpfully note is not enough food to feed the 5,000. If you don't know already, how crowds were counted back then were by the adult males present. So this is more likely a crowd of about 20,000 people. And they're all hungry and in the wilderness. And they have a couple loaves and a couple fish. Jesus then tells everyone to sit down. He prays and they start to pass out the food. And not only is everyone fed a little bit, but everyone is fed to be full. And not only that, but there are 12 baskets of leftovers. 12 is not a random number. 12 is a number with a lot of significance. It points to the 12 tribes of Israel being completely and fully fed by Christ. He is feeding Israel in the wilderness. The crowd, seeing what happens, they understand at least a little bit of the significance of this event. They see a sign, verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. They believe through this act that Jesus is the long prophesied prophet. You may be asking, well, who's the prophet? Well, God through Moses says this in Deuteronomy 8.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So here's the prophecy. God says, I'm going to raise up a prophet like Moses. They see that Jesus did did this feeding like Moses did in the wilderness. They go, hey, here's that prophet who's just like Moses. They see a second coming of Moses. They understand some of the imagery but not all of the imagery. Because this is someone greater than Moses who has come. To this growing popularity and them wanting to make him king, Jesus withdraws. And his disciples decide to cross the sea to go to Capernaum at night. And as they're crossing, a strong wind comes up and the most shocking thing happens. As they're fighting the storm, they they see Jesus walking on the water. And he gets into the boat immediately. So I want you to follow this. They have a miraculous feeding. They now have a miraculous crossing of the water. This is an intentional allusion back to the Red Sea crossing of Israel. A strong wind suddenly comes up. There's a sudden crossing. And there's the presence of God in their midst. And Jesus says to them, Don't fear, it is I. I actually think that is a rather poor translation. Jesus literally says here the same thing he says when I am the bread of life. He says, don't fear, I am. I am. He's claiming the divine name of God. It is popular to say that there are seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. The more I study, the more I realize that is far too little. There are actually at least ten I am statements 
in the Gospel of John, this being one of them. And what he is saying when Jesus says this, whether I am the bread of life, or I am the way, the truth, and the life, or before Abraham was, I am, or don't fear, I am, is he is saying, I am the great I am. I am God. They say that this is the prophet. No, you haven't seen it clear enough yet. When Israel crossed the Red Sea, it was the Lord who performed the miracle. Exodus 12.21 Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord, or I am, drove the sea back by a strong east wind. Why did God perform all of these miracles in Egypt? Well, one of the reasons he did it is explained in Exodus 12.18 That the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. God performed these miracles one after another, the plagues, the pillar of fire, the parting of the Red Sea, not just to save Israel, but to show that all of the Egyptian gods were not gods, but He alone is. In the same way, when Jesus walks from the water into the boat and says, I am, He's saying, figure it out. I am God. The people were fed. They identify him as a mere prophet like Moses. So he performs another sign to show them that something greater than Moses has come. He is the Lord. He is Jehovah. He is Yahweh. And he makes it plain. And because Jesus is God, he says to his disciples and to us, don't fear. You don't need to be afraid. And so far, we have this New Passover miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. New, better water crossing. Jesus walks on water. And now we're going to have feeding in the wilderness. Jesus' popularity now seems at an all-time high. The crowd is swelling. They wake up. They say Jesus isn't there anymore. So they go across the lake themselves, or the sea, because they want this Jesus. They want the one they've seen. But unfortunately, their faith is really surfacy. They're not really interested in Christ. The back and forth Jesus has with this crowd for the remainder of the chapter is very telling. He says to the crowd in verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. Jesus' point is very blunt and it's very clear. You are only following me around because you got a free meal and you want more free food. In college, they used to say, if you want to have people show up to an event, just provide free food. And they all come. But they had missed the point of the sign itself. They had eaten the food, but missed the substance. So Jesus presses the point. He says, don't make your life about food that doesn't ultimately satisfy. Rather, you need to eat a food that will satisfy you and provide eternal life. How do they respond? They say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe in Him who God has sent. 
I want to read that to you again because this is going to be the theme throughout the rest of the chapter. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. This is the framing question of the whole chapter, the whole of the bread of life discourse. The bread of life discourse is not about communion. It's not about the Lord's table primarily. It is certainly not about eating the physical elements that somehow miraculously turn into Jesus' actual body and actual blood. It is very clearly, again and again, Jesus says, it is about believing in him. The metaphor of eating his flesh and drinking his blood is a metaphor for believing. It is about faith. Any attempt to make it about the physical bread and wine of communion is to miss the entire context of this text. It is nowhere in view here. Can it be applied to it? Yes. But that is not the point. So the crowd responds in verses 30 and 31. Then what do you do that we may believe in you? Jesus says, the work here is you need to believe in me. They say, what sign do you do that we may believe in you? What work will you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now you should really feel the audacity of that statement. He literally just fed 20,000 people with a couple loaves of bread and a couple fish. And they say, you want us to believe in you, what sign are you going to give us? And they say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. That is not just happenstance. They're saying, for 40 years our fathers ate this bread. You did it once, Jesus. You did it just once. God in the wilderness did it for 40 years. You're going to need to give us some more bread and some more fish. They want more free food. They're interested more in the power than in the person. And Jesus responds, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, Give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. What do they need? They don't need more physical bread. Jesus says that bread of heaven, the manna, points forward to a true bread from heaven, which is him, the bread of life. Like I've said to you before again and again, this world is literally just dripping with meaning. We've been trained by naturalism and other lies to view everything as meaningless. But this world is dripping with meaning. Why do you need to eat? Why, as this sermon gets too long, is your stomach going to growl? Why are you going to go have lunch afterwards? Because God has designed it that you need to eat because you are not God. You are dependent. You eat food to stay alive because you are not someone who can provide your own life force. And so God has woven into the fabric of the universe to teach us that we are dependent upon him through food to keep living. In other words, if we don't eat, we die. Put it another way. If you don't have Christ, you die. It is God who provides us with all food, whether it's miraculously or not. 
But the eating of the bread or the food speaks to that greater need of our dependence upon God for life. This is why in the Garden of Eden there was a a tree of life. This is why in the new creation there will be trees of life. That God will provide life eternal. You don't just need food to exist. You need Christ to exist because He is the Creator, Sustainer, and Redeemer of all things. And so Jesus' point is this. It wasn't Moses who fed you in the wilderness. You shouldn't be looking for just a prophet like Moses. It was God who fed you in the wilderness. And it is God who is feeding you now through Jesus, who is the Lord. So, so far, things have not gotten too tense or too offensive, but it is here that the bread of life discourse takes a turn towards the offensive. Jesus has identified himself as the bread of life. He says, if you eat him, you'll never be hungry or thirsty again. He makes a very similar offer to the woman at the well in John 4, and the woman at the well and the crowd here have a very similar response. Give us that, and we'll never be hungry and thirsty again. Sounds great. But they've missed the point. The eating is believing in Christ. It is believing in Him. And so it picks up again in verse 40. He says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Again, the heart of the whole dialogue. Personal belief. Eating equals personal belief. Drinking equals personal belief belief. This is what it means to be the bread of life. You must believe in him. But now the heat comes. The people begin to question this, to question his teaching. They realize the weight of him saying, I am the bread of life. And they say, we know his parents. We know he didn't come from heaven like the manna did. We know Mary and Joseph. This guy's full of it. So Jesus responds in verse 43. He says, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. They are literally here grumbling about the bread God provided for them. Does that sound familiar? This is exactly what Israel did in the wilderness. They got the manna and they said, We don't want this anymore. And they do the same thing to the true manna from heaven. And so Jesus says, unfazed by their unbelief, that only those who are drawn by the Father will actually come to him in faith. And as controversial as that may be, it's only going to get more controversial. Verses 47 through 51. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread of life that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus says, you are asking for too little. You need more than just some bread, just some manna from heaven. Your fathers ate that bread, and guess what? They died. It wasn't enough. 
He says, what I am offering you is something better. Eternal life. But you will need to eat this bread that is my flesh. Now just like with Nicodemus, Jesus said to Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus goes, what are you talking about? I'm going to go back inside my mother's womb? He takes it literally. It's an analogy. It's, it's a metaphor. What does he mean by eat his flesh? Well, he says, eating his flesh gives eternal life. He also says, what gives you eternal life is whoever believes in me. It's a metaphor. But just like with Nicodemus and the woman at the well, the people take him literally And this leads to conflict. The conflict deepens in verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Basically, they're saying, what's wrong with this guy? What is he talking about? No one wants to be a cannibal. No one wants to eat his body. The word here translated as disputed, in other translations, gets more strongly at the word they strongly disputed they strongly argued like this isn't just like hey we don't we don't understand it like they're getting agitated they're upset at this analogy there's a sharp disagreement you must remember the dietary laws of the old testament how the jews ate was very central to how they viewed themselves jesus is putting his finger on a cultural pressure point and he's pushing down hard Their aversion is more than just being grossed out by cannibalism. It's that they are being culturally offended. And Jesus knows it. And he knows the crowd is misunderstanding his analogy. And I think this is one of the most striking things about this text. Is throughout the dialogue, things get ratcheted up. Jesus is being misunderstood. He's being culturally offensive on purpose. And he just keeps doubling down. And never once tries to clarify. Look at verse 53. In response to their strong, sharp disagreement, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because the Father. Uh, So whoever feeds on me, he will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So Jesus says, not only must you eat my flesh, you now also have to drink my blood. And that is the only way you will be saved. Because his flesh is true food and his blood is true drink. Again, it's a metaphor for faith. But here in a shocking way, Jesus intentionally increases the offense. The Old Testament law strictly forbids drinking of blood. D.A. Carson explains this in his commentary on John. The law of Moses forbade the drinking of blood and even the eating of meat with the blood still in it. To drink the blood of the Son of Man was therefore for them an intuitively abhorrent notion. The net effect is to make Jesus' claim all the more scandalous. 
Jesus says, you need to eat my flesh. And they're like, what are you talking about? He goes, no, no, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And instead of bending to the angry mob, Jesus doubles down, says it again and again, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And as you read throughout the passage, he says this in a synagogue. He says it in a church service on Sunday morning. He offended them on purpose. And when given the chance to explain and clarify our nuance, he just refuses and doubles down. As I've said to you again and again in this gospel, if you don't have room for these kinds of actions from Jesus, you're worshiping a fake, chiseled out piece of wood Jesus that isn't the Jesus of the Bible. We so want Jesus to be just kind, non-threatening, always affirming man, but that's just not who he was. Sometimes he was like that, sometimes he was like this, and it was to keep us on our toes. So what happens? How is the situation resolved? The crowd says to Jesus, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Jesus, this is really offensive. And Jesus responds, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? They are offended by his words. And he says, Just wait till you see what I'm about to do. That's going to offend you even more. The Gospels contain many hard words that we can take offense at. But contrary to modern thinking, being offended is not a virtue. It does not put you in a position of power. It does not make you right, let alone righteous. And in fact, I put forward to you, if you are offended by the truth, then you are steeped in unrighteousness. And so, all of Jesus' disciples here, besides the twelve, they leave him. 20,000 down to 12. One sermon. By modern ministry standards, Jesus was a failure. Don't you want to be a little more winsome here to keep your following going? Maybe you can put in little bits of that offensive stuff as you go along and maybe they'll learn. Nope. He could have cleared up the misunderstanding at any point, but he doesn't. So I want to gently, maybe not so gently, push on this. We need to get over our modern self-righteous sensibilities of niceness and accept the words of Christ. These words bring eternal life. And how you respond to them matters. The twelve offer for us the right response to Christ in his hard words. They say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They know there's nowhere else to go. Salvation comes through Jesus alone. Offensive to me or not. Holiness is offensive to sin. Light is offensive to darkness. 
And we, as sinners, are trapped in darkness, and we live in an age that celebrates darkness. The light will be offensive. Jesus knew this. And so affirming people in their bondage and slavery to sin may go down like honey, but the end is bitterness and death. This is why Jesus spoke this way. He didn't spoke that way just so that he could get a bunch of hot takes online. He spoke that way because he wanted people to be saved. So what we see here is that Jesus leads a new, greater exodus. What makes his exodus greater than the first one? The salvation is not temporary, it's eternal. He's offering eternal life. From the feeding of the 5,000 to the walking on the water to offering himself as the true manna from heaven, the message is clear. All of those things happened as types and categories so that you and I might understand Jesus. And unlike those who received the salvation of the Exodus, those who are in Christ are saved eternally by grace through faith. This is the number one dividing line in all of world history. Your response to Jesus. This is the main point he brings to the crowd again and again. What must you do? You must believe in me. What must we do? You must believe in me. Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. Satisfy your spiritual hunger. Seek the bread that lasts forever. Not what you're going to eat at lunch. And so Jesus commands again and again, believe in me. I am what you need. I will give you eternal life. This means that we have to stop seeking for healing, for meaning, for guidance, or for righteousness in lesser things. How many times, either collectively or individually, do we have to keep going to these things, these breads of the world, and eat them and just be like, hey, I'm hungry again. That didn't work. Finally, we have to see the offensive Jesus. This whole middle part of John It's just going to keep getting ratcheted up more and more again and again in this gospel. Jesus is given an opportunity to calm the crowds down, and he just refuses. He increases the offense. We're going to get to John 8, and they're going to get mad at him, and he's going to look him in the eye, and he's going to say, you guys are sons of the devil. You're not sons of Abraham. You're sons of the devil. That'd be like me looking you guys in the eye and say, you're not sons and daughters of America. You're sons and daughters of the Taliban. This is the Jesus of Scripture. He remains incredibly difficult to put into a box. He's constantly surprising us. And that's a good thing. Because Christ alone has the words of eternal life, and He alone is our hope. And this is the gospel message. You cannot save yourself. All the works you do will never be enough. Your physical birth is not enough. Your cultural standards, God isn't impressed by them. You being offended, he's certainly not impressed by you being offended. Because man is morally bankrupt apart from Christ. Man is in need of a Savior, and that Savior isn't you. It's him. And so we see that the Lord, indeed, he alone must save. And he has made a way for that through Jesus. But you must eat his flesh and drink his blood. You must believe in him. And then 
you have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you this morning that you speak to us in your word. We thank you for the kind words of Christ and the hard words of Christ. Lord, may you train our hearts and our minds to love both and to see the grace and mercy of God in both. And Lord, may you kill anything in us that finds offense in what you have said in your word. For you are the standard, not us. And so Lord, I pray for the people sitting here this morning that you may impart life to them, that they may indeed feast on the body and the blood of Christ through faith and then have eternal life. We ask, Lord, that this may happen and that Christ may come quickly. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Christ Bible Church. Remember, this world is dripping with meaning because Christ created it, he sustains it, and he is reconciling it all to himself. Now go and live out that glorious truth.